inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. This morning I have as my guest Phil Bennett, who is a native Floridian and spent a lot of his career working in advanced rechargeable batteries. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. So, Phil, before we start talking about the the heavy-duty stuff on the technology, let's talk about you a little bit. I understand you're from Miami, born and raised there. What was it like growing up in Miami, and sort of how did you end up in Gainesville? Well, I grew up in the southern part of Miami. I was about three miles from Biscayne Bay and maybe two or three miles from the Everglades. So I had water everywhere, and there were homes, but not really close together. So I had a lot of opportunities to get out and see nature, which is now an important part of my life. I love the water. I love to fish and boat. And I grew up there, went to elementary, uh, middle school, high school there. I was not a very good student in public schools, and I always had an interest in science. But as I was in my teenage years, science wasn't cool. And I always felt that the girls didn't like science. So if the girls didn't like science... <laughs> What's the point, right? Right. I wasn't, I wasn't going to show that I was interested in it, although there was always that deep feeling that I enjoyed it. And I was not able, actually, to get into the University of Florida or Florida State or the University of Miami because of my high school grades and the courses that I took. I actually had no intention of going on to college and ended up taking some courses at the community college in Miami. It was a ju- called the Junior College, Miami Day Junior College. Mm-hmm. And I was working at a machine shop. And it was a small family-owned machine shop. The owners recommended that I start taking some engineering courses. I guess he saw some potential in me as an engineer. And the first time I took a chemistry course or anything beyond algebra was when I was at the community college. And I really started enjoying it, and I was fascinated with science again. So it kind of rekindled that idea of how important science was to me. Right. Let's back up a little bit. So you, sure. you're in in Miami as a kid. You said close to water and so on and out and about. I assume your parents probably had no idea where you were, right? Sort of. Well, <laughs> that's pretty much pretty. true. Yeah, my dad had a small grocery store uh-huh. uh, in, a, in a relatively low-income part of town. He worked long hours, and I didn't see too much of him. My mother used to work with him also. So they didn't really know a lot of what I was doing. And so you were out just playing, or were you the sort that was interested in discovering animals and building stuff, or what was... Well, I was more... I had a lot of friends, so I used to ride my bicycle over to friends' house. Mm -hmm. And the fact that my parents weren't around too much allowed me to get into some mischief and to get into a little bit of trouble, I guess. And But it gave me that opportunity to really explore. Right. And I still, to this day, have that desire to go down a dirt road or something where I've never been before just to see where it goes. So if I'm driving through Gainesville and I see you riding around on your bike, I need to be worried, right? So there, <laughs> no, there, not, there's Phil. <laughs> not worried anymore. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about batteries, uh, which is where you spent a good chunk of your career. For the listeners who aren't familiar with batteries, how they work, and rechargeable batteries, walk us through the basics and why kind of the, the latest generation of batteries, why are they a big deal? 
let me start out by just explaining there are two general categories of batteries. One is the disposable kind that most people are familiar with that go into remote controls or into toys, a variety of other things. And then there's the rechargeable batteries, what we call primary batteries, which are the disposable and the rechargeable batteries. The rechargeable batteries are very complicated, actually, because you want to have a battery that will be able to charge and discharge a thousand times. Otherwise, it's not very valuable. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to utilize it in different environments, different temperatures, different exposures. You want to be able to use it inverted in different positions. Not all rechargeable batteries can do those things. And the chemistry that's involved in a rechargeable battery has to be such that it can go in one direction to allow the use of the stored energy and then go in reverse when you recharge it. In the reversal process, the chemical reactions have to be almost 100% reversible. Wow. Because if they're not, if you lose, let's say, 1% each time, you're only going to have a battery that will last about 100 cycles. So it really has to be fine-tuned in such a way that it can... So both ways, 100%. Both ways, 100%. And that's pretty difficult. So there's a lot of design factors that go into it. And I know that it's a big deal, well, for everyone, all manufacturers, for the size and weight of batteries. Is there a difference between chargeable and rechargeable in terms of size and weight? Yes, there is, um, to, to answer that very quickly. A lot of rechargeable batteries, the type of batteries that are in cell phones and in uh, other electronic devices, uh, computers, when they started out having smaller cell phones and things like that, they were basically the same size as the disposable kind, the, the AA or AAA size. But since then, we have these small, flat phones and, and electronics, so the batteries are made differently. But the chemistry is pretty much the same as what was used in the small, cylindrical, disposable kind. That's one type of battery. Now, if you look at a car battery, the kind that you use to start your car, that has a completely different footprint, and they're larger. They have a lot more energy stored, and they have to deliver that energy in a very short period of time. So that means a lot of power. So let's talk about your specific contribution, I guess, to the field of batteries. I mean, you've been talking about batteries in general, and you were involved with the development of something called a nickel-metal-hydrid rechargeable battery. What was the difference between that and batteries that came before, and how is it a step forward? Well, when I was working on the nickel-metal-hydride batteries, that was when nickel-cadmium batteries was the primary rechargeable battery for consumer electronics and other types of portable devices. The problem with the nickel cadmium is the cadmium that's in the nickel cadmium. It's a toxic metal, just like lead is in the lead batteries that we use for our cars. But they were so pervasive that people, when you were finished with your battery or finished with the device, we would generally just throw the battery into the trash and then it would end up in a landfill and then possibly in the water supply. So companies were looking for alternatives to cadmium. And what was found was a new types of metals that can absorb hydrogen gas. So this metal was used as one of the electrodes in storing energy. So the water, all batteries, almost all batteries have a liquid in them, usually water, except for now the new lithium ions don't. But when the battery would be recharged, the water that's in the battery would decompose into hydrogen and then an, another chemical, uh, which I won't go into all the chemistry. But that hydrogen would then be absorbed by the metal that's used to make the electrode. And a tremendous amount of hydrogen could be stored in that metal. 
So that was then used as the fuel for discharging the battery again. So that's where the name metal hydride comes in. The nickel is the other electrode. All batteries have a positive electrode and a negative electrode. So uh, I didn't know this until interviewing you that Gainesville became the largest nickel metal hydride battery manufacturer in the world where we're recording this podcast. Is that still true? or is No, that's not true anymore. No. It, in fact, it, at one time, it was the largest nickel cadmium manufacturing facility in the world. Really? Okay. Yeah, but it was when it was General Electric, and General Electric, from what I understand, didn't want it publicized too much because of the cadmium issue. They didn't want it recognized in the community as being a potential polluter. And the nickel metal hydrate is still used in like hybrid electric vehicles, right? Yes, absolutely, because okay. it's a very safe battery system. Even though there's hydrogen involved in it, it's very safe. Hydrogen safe also. But can you tell us a little bit about the future of batteries? What's the next step on the horizon? I've read a number of things about different types of batteries. I'm pretty sure I don't fully understand what's sure. coming down the pipe. Sure. Well, there's always a drive for higher energy, what we call higher energy density. In other words, how much energy can you pack into a small package? High power, which means how quickly can you get that energy out? Cost is another issue or another question. Safety is a big concern environmental impact, things like that. So probably about 20 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, lithium-ion batteries made the scene. And those have a higher voltage, about three times a higher voltage than nickel-cadmium or nickel-metal hydride. They don't store as much energy per se, or capacity is what we would call. Ultimately, the package has higher energy than does a nickel-metal hydride. In doing that, it has to use a non-water-based system. The liquid that's in there is a non-water-based electrolyte. We call it electrolyte. Um, that brings some issues because it is flammable, can be flammable. So that introduces some safety aspects to it. But that was the direction. That, that took a big leap forward in battery technology. This is now, the, the lithium ion. The lithium ion. Okay. And that's now used almost exclusively in most rechargeable battery applications. Hmm. Okay. So like a cell phone, for instance, now? Cell phone has lithium ion. Computers have lithium ion. A lot of biomedical applications have lithium ion. Mm -hmm. It's not used for hybrid electric vehicles. Vehicles, and it's not used for starter batteries to start your car mm -hmm. or other large-scale batteries. Part of the issue with that is the cost because it is more expensive. But if you're going to have a battery for a phone or for a computer, you're willing to spend 20% more or 30% more to have a longer runtime and have a smaller and lightweight and not worry about the cost. Right. The cost of the battery is considerably lower than the cost of the whole device. Now, then there's a whole nother class of batteries, which are not portable type batteries that would be used for things like wind farms or solar farms. Those are batteries that you want to have low cost. You're not so concerned with how much it weighs and how much volume it occupies, mm -hmm. but you are concerned with how many cycles you can get out of it and the ultimate cost and safety. So those would be things like lead acid, and there's a whole nother range of battery types, battery chemistries that's being developed for those applications. Those would be types of batteries that you would have a big solar farm that would cover several acres. And associated with that acreage would be a building that holds the batteries. So the building would basically be just to hold the batteries. 
So that's a big deal, right? Because one of the upper limits of the use of solar power, right, is this ability to store the energy. Absolutely. Like it's not generating any energy at night, so you have to have something to discharge to be able to store that energy during the day. Or when a cloud comes over, so there's a dip in the amount of energy that's being stored. So you want to have something that can store the energy while the light is available. That would be for solar. For wind, wind sometimes drops off. Sometimes you have a lot of wind, sometimes you don't have much wind. So there's always ups and downs in the cycling of the energy that's being produced. Phil, let's move on to, and and I ask this of all the inventors, entrepreneurs that we have on the, the show, you have a great idea, you know it's a great idea, but then there's sort of the next phase and that's getting that great idea out there in terms of marketing it, selling it, packaging, whatever it takes, yeah. just move it into the marketplace. What are some of the lessons you have learned about that phase of inventing, taking your good idea and actually getting it in a shape where somebody wants to buy it and will buy it. That's a whole other part of commercializing the invention that you have or the product that you have. One of the things that I learned from uh, being in this industry, in the battery industry, first of all, it takes more than one invention to make a commercial product. You might have the one good idea to get started and you try to cover as much ground in your invention and your patent to make sure that nobody else can capitalize on that. However, there's always other things that need to be done that you overlook in that first discovery. Those are the things that require other people. One of the things that I found is that it really takes a team of people to work with you on developing your product to the point where you have something that can be commercialized. And then you need another team of people that will help you commercialize it, to market it. Mm-hmm. So that's not just salespeople. That's a lot of marketing, identifying what the strengths and weaknesses of the product are, and then identifying a strategy that you can use to go out into the public and convince the public that, hey, I have this new idea. And you, you, you need, need it. to buy it, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about surprises, both good and bad. Is there anything that falls in the category of like, wow, I had no idea, either, again, positive or negative, as you either develop the idea itself or as you try to take it to market? I think the biggest surprise to me in looking back at all of the work that I've done in the battery industry is something that I just said. It takes a team of people to really bring something to fruition. It's not one person. And it it takes a lot of coordination and a lot of interpersonal skills to get people that have different ideas to work together and to generate the ideas that are needed to take it to the next step. Probably the most surprising thing was the amount of communication skills that are required Mm -hmm. and the amount of willingness to accept other people's ideas and to be able to bring them into the group so that they feel comfortable expressing their ideas and willingness to work together as a team. You're familiar with sort of both the world of research and development and academia and also the business side of it. Is there a huge difference in sort of the way people think in those respective worlds? I I know I'm grossly oversimplifying this, but you could sort of caricature academics as ivory tower types, and they spend all their time in their labs, and they don't really know how the business world works. And then the other side, the business folks who really don't care about ideas, and they don't really understand them. I know that's a gross oversimplification, but is there a barrier between those two communities that is difficult to cross? Yeah, I can answer that from a personal perspective. Um, I've spent many years in the area of science and developing the way that I think as a scientist and as an engineer. 
solving problems, just naturally using the, a scientific approach in everything that I do. My wife, on the other hand, is very business-oriented, very driven to this is what we've got to do and this is how we're going to do it. And her thought process are very different than my thought process. Who knew? <laughs> And there are oftentimes big clashes in the way that we think and the way that we communicate. And I think the communication part is probably the one of the biggest parts of it, because when I try to describe something, I just naturally try to describe it in a way where it's not very ambiguous. There's very little room for uncertainty in the way that I describe it, whereas my wife, on the other hand, doesn't use very many words and is just right to the point with what she wants to do. So sometimes there's a communication problem. Does your wife work with you together in business or is this... Oh, in, in, in business now we do, yeah. Oh, right. So that's yeah. interesting. I mean, uh, my wife and I founded the Cade Museum and yeah. um, worked together for a number of years, and we were surprised by the number of husband-wife teams that we've come across, and usually they they complement each other in exactly the way you describe. Yeah. So someone once maybe the vision person, others the implementer. Yeah. Um, but our architects are husband and wife. We mm. have some designers, husband and wife. So anyway, uh, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, final question, Phil, and, and this is one we ask of, of most everyone on the show. If you had a, a young researcher coming to you, or any researcher, you don't have to be young, but they want to follow a similar trajectory. They've got a great idea, and they're thinking about taking it to market. What words of wisdom would you give to that person about things they need to look out for, things they need to avoid, things they need to, to do, that sort of thing? Probably one of the most important things is the determination to continue pursuing what you feel that you've invented and make sure that you don't give up hope and keep going. There will always be things that will get in the way and you just can't let those bother you. You, you just can't even think that it's an obstruction. You just have to think, okay, well, this is just another problem that I have to get over. That's one of the most important things. I think the other thing is recognize that this is probably not going to be the final invention of your product or your idea, that there's going to be other things that are going to come along that will supplement and complement the product that you have so that it makes it better and it puts it in a position where it can then be sold, put it in a position where people are going to want your product. And in order to do that, you need to have other people around that have good ideas. You have to be able to be open to their ideas. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to always use their ideas, but you have to be able to bring them in and make them feel comfortable enough to generate the ideas that you want to hear. And that takes a lot of skill. That takes a lot of effort and a lot of communication. So communication skills are critically important in making this happen. So one point you brought up, Phil, I think is fascinating insight, and that is an inventor has to kind of exist in this state of not knowing, right? You don't know exactly if it's going to work out, and you don't know exactly how it's going to work out. Yeah. And since you don't know what you don't know, and that's why you need to depend on other people. Yeah, I, I never really thought of it that way. But yes, I think that's absolutely right. There's always going to be something that will get in your way. Mm -hmm. And you just have to overcome that. And you may not know how you're going to do it. And that's when you need to bring other people in that you can trust, that you can rely on, that you can feel comfortable talking to them and saying, hey, we've got this problem. We've got to get over it. Tell me what you think. Um, excellent advice, Phil, and I really appreciate your time this morning. And when the next great battery technology comes out, I'm going to give you a call and have you explain it to me. Oh, I'd love to do it. <laughs> Thanks very much for being on the show today. Okay, thank you for having me. 
Radio Cade would like to thank the following people for their help and support. Liz Gist of the Cade Museum for coordinating inventor interviews. Bob McPeak of Hartwood Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida for recording, editing, and production of the podcasts and music theme. Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida.